0: If parents, if you're visiting, if you're here, feel free to follow your kids downstairs so that you know where to get them, because the teachers will need you to pick them up after the service, uh, so that we can, they, they can also have coffee and cookies uh, that hopefully are not eaten by all the kids by the time they get up here. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, my name is, uh, well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn them to Acts 24, but my name is Pastor Nate, I'm the lead pastor here, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's, one, there's a blue one in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair. We're on page 544 of that Bible. Uh, but if you don't have one, I encourage you to take that one, bring it home, read it, and reflect upon who our awesome God is. Start with the Gospel of John and just walk it through. And we would love to talk to you more about that. But as you turn there to Acts chapter 24, have you ever heard of the Latin phrase carpe diem? It's a it's a pretty popular phrase. The first time I ever heard about it was in a good movie. Well, I should be careful with what I say with good, but a movie called Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams saying that famous line, actually w- voted one of the most famous lines of movie history to his students. Carpe diem, he says. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. I was also reminded of this phrase by a Favorite TV show in our family called Phineas and Ferb, as they built a roller coaster singing the song called Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. The Latin philosopher Maria Marsilio made this point about Carpe Diem. It's this metaphor of cultivating plants that is more accurately translated as plucking the day, evoking the plucking or gathering of ripening fruits or flowers, really is talking about enjoying a moment that is rooted in some sort of experience of nature. In our modern day, we call it YOLO, which is made popular in 2012 by the hip-hop artist Drake in his song, The Motto. YOLO means you only live once. Or we have the Nike slogan, which has been around forever, called, Just Do It. But is that what life is all about? Is that what it means to to live this life? Is it just about experiencing life to the fullest? Is that all we have to live for in this world? How about you and I? If you are a Christian, what does it mean to live your life to the fullest, to seize the day? What causes us to seize the moments we have in our everyday, And what do we seize it with? For what reasons or for what purpose? And I think we see a good example of what that looks like in Acts chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullius... They laid before the governor their case after Paul against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, "'Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since you, by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly.' For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, "'Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city.' Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. And there will be a resurrection of both the just and unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offering. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without, uh, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you are to make, and to make an accusation. Should they have a, what should, should they have against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lesias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to, to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drosilia, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "'Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you.'" At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come to continue to worship you as we hear the listening of your word preached. Lord, give us ears to hear and a heart to hear what your word has to say. Lord, may you be glorified as we continue to preach and to worship you. And Lord, there is no possible way that I can turn this out well on my own. So Lord, will you make this turn out well? By your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. In verses 1 to 9, we see Paul is accused. Again, there seems to be an ongoing trend with Paul. But in verse 1... After some waiting and some, a period of waiting, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders to, with a spokesman named Tertullius. And let's remind ourselves of who this high priest is. Historically, we can look at historical records of who he is. He was not a godly man at all. He actually held the, the office, the spiritual office of high priest and completely and utterly perverted it. He was not a man of God, not a man of, um, uh, of, uh, of integrity at all. But he came with this man named Tertullius and who is he? We don't really know a lot about him, but we do know this, he's a hired hand. He's a hired gun. He's good at rhetoric. He's good at speaking. He's a prosecutor for my lawyer friends. He was Jew- he might have been Jewish or Roman or Greek. We really don't know, but we do know this is that he's hired for one purpose and that purpose is to convince the governor that what they are saying is right and what Paul is saying is wrong. And Tertullius is a sort of that prosecutor, as we see. But he begins with this flattery, which is what I try to communicate as I was reading it, this, this puffing up of, 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 of the governor here. And remember, flattery looks like a compliment, but it's not, right? When we use flattery, we try to use words that uh, try and get us something in return, in the extreme case, we see this often in our world when people say, I love you, right? Hey, I love you. Now, can you do this for me? All right, because that's a great biblical example of what love is. It's not, okay? Don't someone snip that out and like say, look what pastor said. No, it's not. <laughs> but he's doing flattery. He's trying to butter him up. It's like saying, oh, you, looked, you, you play that guitar so well. Hey, can you play that guitar for me? at this event. It's like buttering up to get to the real requests. And the problem is that none of what Tertullius says is actually historically true. His whole introduction is wrong. As we saw last week, all of the governors, uh, he is known for an increase of insurrection within the land. And eventually he's killed for it. And he comes in verse 4 and he says, I beg you in your kindness. Felix, he says, please be reasonable. Please be fair as you judge. Uh, Even though we may not be doing that ourselves. As he continues on. And this we will see. Tertullius points to the man here has caused problems. And just like just like Felix came and he dealt with the revolts of the Egyptian, he wants them to do that here again with Paul. Hear what we have to say against this man. So in verses 5 to 7, Tertullius charges Paul with three things. The first one is this, is that he is a political menace. He is a threat to Pax Romanana which is the, all about stability and the peace of the Roman Empire. The Romans prized that above all things. If you were charged with some sort of offense of causing, uh, I don't know, disunity or disruption in the government or civil discourse, you that was a capital punishment. It was likely to be killed for that. He comes out of the gate just swinging. And then he says he's a leader of a religious heresy. There, he, th- there were other religious sects throughout the Roman Empire, but this one, this one right here, was dangerous. He calls it a plague, something to be snuffed out. And Christians were called the Nazarenes because Jesus was from Nazareth. And Tertullius isn't just naming the sect, but he's accusing Paul to be the leader of that. And the third thing is this, is that Paul desecrated the temple which brought the city to riots. And remember that to bring a Gentile, which is what Paul was being accused of, he was accused of bringing a a Gentile into the innermost court of the temple. And there was that plaque that warned all Gentiles, Roman or Greek, if you come into this area, your death is on your own head. You will be killed. And the Jews from Asia made that assumption when they saw Paul because they saw him later, or earlier, sorry, walking around in Jerusalem with a friend who was a Gentile. It's amazing what assumptions can do, by the way. In verse 8, Tertullius closes his argument with, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So he's really confident in his argument. Like, really confident. But here's the problem. Felix already got a report from the Tribune about what happened. And Tertullius was seeking to make a claim that the Jews had the right to try Paul according to Jewish law by Jewish authorities and the case is already starting to fall apart. But this isn't about Paul. This is about Jesus. The people who are accusing Paul are really opposing Jesus Christ. They are behaving without integrity. Even though we have haven't gotten to Paul's reply, we can see that there's really no evidence at all. It's ironic how here there really is nothing new. Okay? When I read this passage, I'm like, wow, there really is nothing new under the sun. Because we live in a world of cancel culture, Where my hearsay dictates what someone else's, uh, uh, what somebody else's, what happens, what they actually did. I was reading an article not that long ago that was uh, slamming an individual for very grievous and serious things. Like the charges were serious and grievous. And they kept talking about the substantial evidence. But they actually never talked about what the substantial evidence is. It drove me nuts. Like, I'm all for this. The guy should be fired and jailed a whole nine yards if this is true. Tell me what the evidence is. that's what Tertullius is doing. He's like, this is all, that's what's happened, but he's actually not giving any evidence of what is happening. Flattery won't be enough to win this case without evidence. And in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charges, affirming that all these things were true, and they begin to egg him on and say, look, it's true, it's true, it's true, because oftentimes the loudest voice always wins, right? And what Paul will do is now show that he is truly on trial for the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for his people's sins and rose from the dead. We live in a time where the gospel may be viewed as a disease that needs to be eradicated. But the reality is, is that the gospel is the only thing that will heal the disease of the sin. And Paul knows that. And he declares that as he gives a defense, and he will use every opportunity that God has placed him in to declare about the goodness of who his God is. As we see in verses 10 to 21, we see Paul begin to give this defense, and Felix gives a nod to Paul, saying, it's your turn. And we see a gospel-consumed life is a different life right off the bat, right off the beginning of Paul's defense, there's something different about him than there is about everybody else who's accusing him. Right at the beginning, he's different. He doesn't try to flatter Felix. He just simply acknowledges that Felix has the authority to judge the case. He doesn't try to say things that aren't true. He doesn't try to make himself look better. He just simply states the facts. He speaks the truth. And Paul gives us his defense. In verse 11, he says, I didn't go to the temple. I was at the, sorry, I did go to the temple, but I was there to worship. In verse 12, I wasn't arguing. I wasn't causing any trouble. And remember, he was taking part in a ceremonial purification at this time that James and the other elders had asked him to do in, in keeping the unity of the church. He was actually doing what the law required him to do while he was in the temple worshiping, as he says. And then he says that the Jews can't prove any of this happened anyways. Where's the evidence? And then in verses 14 to 15, he boldly proclaims, I am a follower of the way. I am a follower. And Paul makes a clear statement that this isn't about what he may or may not have done, but this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that is on trial. And this was about who Christ is, who Jesus is, and who he said he was, and the outcome of what he did, meaning the resurrection. The words were offensive, and they were a stench, a stench in, the, in the ears of those who heard this. And Paul doesn't deny that he is a follower of the way. I think of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Terrifying words, by the way. And the glory of the Father and of the holy, spe- uh, holy angels, he says. Paul is ready to take up his cross and follow Jesus, and this is an opportunity for him to show of the, what difference the gospel makes in a life. And what he is about to claim is that he is a true follower of the Jewish law and the prophets. He makes a clear dichotomy here: I am the one who's following the law and the prophets. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, essentially saying these guys aren't. This is an amazing statement. It's theologically and doctrinally rich. And what Paul is saying, that Jesus' followers are the heirs to the promise. What this means is that this sect, sect, is actually the faithful community of people of God. For Paul, faith in Jesus Christ was what the Old Testament had been looking forward to since when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And that's what Romans 4.16 says, as as it ends with Abraham, faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There is only one way of salvation, and it was shown to Abraham that it it is only through Jesus Christ who fulfilled the requirements of the law, who is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and is what the Old Testament pointed to. And even in his defense, Paul seeks to please God in every part of his life. He says in verse 16, I always take great pains. He's, he's striving to. He's doing his best. He was actually training himself to be disciplined, seeking to obey God and make much of him and to live a life worthy of the gospel. He had a good conscience so that he would not cause the gospel or others any harm. Unlike those who were accusing him, Paul's life, his attitude and behavior shows him to be a righteous one who, whose life is totally shaped by the revelation of God through, in the Bible. The gospel has consumed him. He has become seized by the gospel. And so he seizes every opportunity because he, his whole life is being shaped by the gospel and he says, to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. A few weeks ago, we talked about conscience. And we defined it the same way as uh, in the book Conscience. It says, that conscience is the conscientiousness, the being aware of your surroundings, of what you believe is right and wrong. And what Paul means by this is he's always acted in accordance to what he believed to be right and wrong as he has trained himself by the Word of God. I think it's a good reminder for us to, to stop and pause and to make sure that our mind is being renewed by the Word of God, including our conscience, so that we know what is right and wrong according to what God has said. Because remember, what's right and wrong, we should always go with what God's word says, not what we feel is right. Like, go with God, not with what your heart says. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. So take that statement, follow your heart, and throw it in the garbage, please. And this is what we continue to go on. His conscience has been informed by the gospel and that shapes how he interacts with others. And in fact, he says in verse 17, he says, I wasn't even arguing with anybody here. I wasn't the one causing any problems. I was minding my own business. I was just walking. And some group of people started yelling, brothers, sisters, they said, come save Israel. that's why he was in Jerusalem was essentially just to worship God and to bring gifts to his people he says not to cause a problem and then Paul points out in verses 18 to 20 he points out that he wasn't defiling the temple because he was in a state of purity but not only that where in the world are the people that accused me In, in Roman law didn't look, uh, it doesn't look very kindly on people who make accusations and didn't stick around to actually accuse. It was a very bad thing. Uh, I remember uh, a professor of mine, you know, if, if you've done any schooling, at least at my school I did, for my undergrad, the, the professors would, at the end of the course, they would hand out a, a course critique form. And, and at the end of the class, he would lecture us and say, and it was a lecture, he would say, if you're not willing to put your name to it, don't say it, right? That's what's happening here. That's how the law worked, and they knew they couldn't prove it, so they didn't stick around. They they just ran, and that this is all because they hated the gospel, and they hated Jesus. So in verse 21, he says, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This is again about Jesus and the resurrection. And suddenly this case becomes something that no Roman court would ever want to touch. This was a religious argument. This wasn't a political, and this wasn't a criminal case. And you could kind of see that sense even in the text. They're like, you can see Felix. You can kind of feel it. He's like, yeah, no, not cool. And Paul isn't talking about the general, general resurrection. He's talking about a specific one. He's talking about Jesus Christ, which gives a hope to all of those who are Christian to their own resurrection and to eternal life with Jesus Christ. See, Paul is on trial for preaching Jesus Christ. Who was crucified on a Roman cross and three days later rose from the dead? Paul points to how Jesus is what the law and the prophets point to, and that it's through Jesus Christ that God's promise of resurrection is fulfilled. It's only through the belief in Jesus Christ, those who are faithful to God, who are God's true people. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the resurrection, he says. You can't say, I love Jesus, without saying he rose from the dead. It's that important. Don't mess with it. It's fundamental. In 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, 12 to 22 says it so powerfully now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain which means if christ didn't raise from the dead it is pointless to be here we have even found to be misrepresenting God, he says, because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he, did not, it, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, he says. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied, he says. But, he says, remember, three-letter words, great words. But, in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And Paul even uses the opportunity of his defense to testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice how he does it. Because even though his accusers come at him with lies and hatred, he doesn't reply with lies and hatred. He does it with calm, collective truth. Jesus did rise from the dead. He sees his very defense as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel not to reflect the hatred of those who accused him and try to get back at them, but to reflect Jesus to them. He faithfully points to the grace of God and warns those around him of the consequences of what happens to those who reject him. As we see this in verses 22 to 27 more, most clearly, as Paul seizes the day. See, in verses 22 to 23, we see Felix, he begins to procrastinate a little bit. He doesn't, he doesn't want to make the judgment until the tribune shows up, but actually we see he takes, like, he doesn't even do it within a two-year period of time. If there's a definition of procrastination, that's it. It's like me trying to put the trim on my kid's bedroom walls. I've been there for five years. It's not like I haven't had time to. It's called Procrastination. And Felix does the same here. He does the same here. And what motivates him? I think it's a mix of two things. I think he does want to know the good news. But as we see, he also wants a little bit more money in his pocket. So in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife to who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. And that who was Jewish part will be important. If this was you, if you were being falsely accused and you've been in prison for a few days and you really don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, what would you use this opportunity to do? I want you to be honest with yourself because everyone, you already know the end of the story. So you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to be the one who's going to preach Jesus. Hopefully. But I don't know about myself. I'd probably try and use that opportunity to kind of paint myself in a better picture. Think about what is at stake here. And I think it would be have been pretty understandable for Paul to use this time for his own advantage. And maybe he could have used this time to get himself in a better piece of a better, better light. Except, what does Paul use his opportunity for? It says right there to speak about the faith in Christ. I want us to see a practical outcome of the gospel living here. Paul's thoughts are about the needs of others. Rather than his own. He knows that the biggest need in Felix and Drusilla's life is, that the, is the need to know Jesus Christ. So he was willing to give of himself in his circumstances to testify of Jesus, to make much of Jesus and what he has done for him in his life. He wasn't stuck in some sort of wallowing in self pity. He looked at his own prison cell as an opportunity to testify of the greatness of Jesus. And I go, wow. I'm a pretty selfish person. But Paul clearly can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Where was Paul? Why was he there? Nothing about what he did He was there simply for being faithful. But he still used every opportunity to share the gospel. Even the injustices that have been done to him are an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. What are the opportunities in your life that you can use to testify of Jesus? What are the things in your life that God has put you in that we often think can't be redeemed for gospel use? What are in reality our opportunities to testify of Jesus Christ. From the hospital bed. How about when someone runs into your car, when you're on your way to work, and you're going to be late? Or someone simply just accuses you of something you didn't do. You had plans to go out with your friends, and your boss calls you up asking you to work. What are the circumstances in your life that God has put you in that are actually opportunities to testify the greatness of Jesus Christ. How about your time at school? Where has God placed you? And what can you use to testify of Jesus? How are you redeeming your current circumstances to testify of the hope of the resurrection? Because it's hope, right? Not like, you know, my favorite sports team is going to win whatever the cup is of that team because that's not going to happen you know yes or on friday pastor matt got married and he had the audacity to say his favorite sport team was the london knights and i was like you liar you don't even watch sports <laughs> right so what, we're not talking about that sort of hope like a sports team hope we're talking about a hope that is sure christ did rise from the dead And that has practical implications on my life, on the here and now. It means that regardless of whatever happens to me here and now, I have hope. That changes my outlook on my circumstances. It's why we have to preach to ourselves the gospel every day, because it's true. We, we look at Christ, we fix our eyes on Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who is our high priest, who can sympathize with us, and suddenly our eyes are no longer on our circumstances, but on our Savior who is walking with us through our circumstances. And that changes everything. Do you remember the old hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives? It's a beautiful hymn, written in 1775. Do you know what the first line is? I know that my Redeemer lives. What comfort this sweet sentence gives. He lives, he lives. Once who once was dead, he lives my everlasting head, he says. I grew up singing this song all the time, and I didn't like it, to be honest. And it wasn't until I got older that I began to look at this word and study God's word. Do you know where that sentence comes from? Oh, Job 19, 6 to 12 says this. Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his nets about me. Ever feel like that? Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my path. He has stripped me me from me, my glory, and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me. He counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramps against me and encamp around my tent. Ever feel like God's doing that to you? We're human, right? We should all be saying, yeah. Those are pretty harsh words. They're, they're, they're songs of lament, really. Lament is a pouring out to God, for what God has done to Job and how much Job has suffered. But that's not where Job ends because in 23 verse 25, he says these wonderful words. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. And I say to Job, they have been. They're in God's word for millennia. They are written in stone. And he says this in verse 25 For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at that last, he will stand upon the earth. All those words are beautiful, aren't they? For I know that my Redeemer lives. What kind of hope does that bring to the Christian? Oh, how does that change how you look at your own circumstances? How does that change how you will use the circumstances you are in? How does that change how you will face today and face tomorrow? How are you redeeming your current circumstances to testify of the hope of the resurrection? Because it's hope. And that's what Paul does. He's in prison, folks. I don't think any of us have been in prison. For something that we have not done. Maybe you've been in prison, but probably because you did something that you deserve to be in prison for, but not Paul. In verse 25, he says this, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgments, and Paul uses this opportunity to raise issues of morality and accountability to a God who is holy. You can't share the gospel without also showing that there is a holy God and we have sinned against him. And because of that sin, we are deserving of the real place called hell. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And Paul is painting a picture of the difference between godliness and sinfulness. And Paul isn't concerned about offending Felix with the gospel he is more concerned with the outcome of what happens to Felix if he rejects the gospel. And I pray that as a church, we would have a greater desire for people to know the gospel because we understand where they're going without it. That we would call people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul uses this to encourage Felix to seize onto Christ to repent of his sin and to believe in Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead. And Paul is more concerned with the fact that if Felix rejects this free gift of salvation, Felix will spend eternity with hell. But Paul has the good news that will free him from that. Paul doesn't sugarcoat it. He is taking a natural conversation and moving them to a supernatural conversation. My grandfather was an um, anesthesiologist, and it was always great going to his house because he had all the good stuff. He's, he's passed away now, so I can say that. <laughs> but he, he would take the medic, you know, you say, Grandpa, I got a headache. You know, and he would take a pill and grind it up and put it into jam. You know, tastes like jam, it was great. I needed the medicine, but Paul doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He points to Christ. The very mention of Felix's wife being here shows that Paul was trying to point out the contrast between Felix and a holy God because Felix wooed Drusilla away from her first husband, King Herod of Agrippa II. This was a man who did not know self-control, who did not know righteousness. And there was him and his wife standing right there. And he says, what is he talking about? Righteousness and self-control. Looking dead in the eyes and saying, you need a savior. You're living an example of sinfulness. And Paul spoke about the righteousness of God it would have shown the unrighteousness of Felix's heart. And Paul's reasoning would have shown that in the order to be made right before a holy God, Jesus came into this world to provide the righteousness that sinners like Felix, like you, like me, needed but couldn't get ourselves. And Felix and you and me, we need Jesus's righteousness We need it imputed to us because we have no righteousness of our own. And Paul points that out as he talks about self-control. And you and I see a lack of righteousness when we start asking questions like, have you ever lied? If you say no, you lied. (laughs) Have you doubted God's character? Have you ever doubted that he was good? All the time? If you say never, then you lied. So go back to the first one. Have you ever wanted something that someone else had or has that you don't have? Have you ever wished harm on someone else? There is no one who is righteous except Jesus and that's what Paul does and he does it from the, from, from the prison cell and it goes to the point that Paul words caused Felix harm or alarm, which means he was extremely afraid, and he sends Paul away, and he says, get away from me, I'll, I'll cut you back later. Because clearly the gospel is there, and Felix did not follow the Roman saying of carpe diem seize the day. He did not. He rejected Jesus Christ at that moment. He puts off his decision to repent and believe, he didn't seize the news of the gospel that was being testified of and all those private conversations with the, like, the greatest missionary of history. Yet all he could do was send Paul away because he was too alarmed by the truth of the gospel. So you notice this. Paul was faithful. He faithfully proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. He didn't concern himself with changing the heart of Felix. Felix. I'm sure he prayed for it. But that wasn't his job. That was the Holy Spirit's. But what if Paul was working on his building his own group or his own sect like that he was being accused of? If he was more concerned about how he felt or the injustices that he was being faced with, how would that affect how he would preach the gospel if his thoughts were so consumed with those things? What if Paul wanted Felix to like him What if he started talking like Tertullius and starting to give flattery? What if he wanted to spend more time on the injustices and the accusations that were said about him? How does that change how he would have shared the gospel if he does at all? But Paul uses the opportunity to share the greatness of who Jesus is. Because how can you be bold when you are addicted to other people's opinions of yourself? You can't at all. Do you see what it means to be consumed by the gospel? Paul preaches the gospel. It is not just good news. It is a demand and a call to obedience. We're supposed to do something with it. The gospel calls us to repent to agree with God that we are sinners and renounce our sin and turn our back on the old ways of life and to believe, to put our full confidence in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, how he rescued us from the hell that we deserve. And that's what Paul does. Uh, J.C. Ryle has a great quote about procrastination in a great book called Thoughts for a Young Man. If you're ever looking for just mentorship from an old dead guy, good book. He died in like 1901 or something. Do you think that you will have a more convenient time to think about these things? He's actually commenting on this, Acts 24. So thought Felix and the Athenians to whom Paul preached, but it never came. The road to hell is paved with such ideas, he says. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. Our sinful hearts will always find something more important to focus on. What will you do today? Will you seize the day? Don't walk out of this building without heeding the good news of Jesus Christ. As Acts 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So what you may ask, be so consumed by the gospel that you use every opportunity to share the gospel. In Christ, your life has become extraordinary. And let me explain this, because in Ephesians 2 verse 1 it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But in Ephesians 2 verses 5, 4 to 5 it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That's extraordinary. See, for the Christian Robin Williams quote couldn't be any more wrong. It's not us that makes our life extraordinary. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that has made our life extraordinary. Who has adopted us. Who took us from the mire of our old life and gave us a new life in him who imputed to us a righteousness through repentance and belief is because of the extraordinary act of God's grace that you and I seize the moment to share the most extraordinary work in our lives of what Christ has done be so consumed by the gospel that you will use every opportunity to share the gospel i pray that we will do this brothers and sisters are we seizing the day carpe diem Seize the day. Brothers and sisters, because of the extraordinary work of Jesus Christ in your life, use every opportunity to testify the greatness of Jesus. Carpe diem. Seize the day to those who haven't repented and believed. The road to hell, as he says, is paved with ideas of waiting. Better make sure to work while you can. Leave nothing unsettled that is eternal. Run no risk when your soul is at stake. How are you, brothers and sisters, seizing the day? It's not about YOLO. I was trying to come up with a cool little quick thing, but I can... Hip-hop artist, though, came up with a song that countered the motto called No Regrets by a guy named Lecrae, and he himself has actually really struggled. But he ends his song with, I'll die with no regrets. The hurt and the pain and the life I choose, I'll do it again in a heartbeat, he says, because of the gospel. Carpe diem, seize the day. Be so consumed by the gospel that you will use every opportunity to share the gospel. Let us pray.